and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Melissa Hamilton, I am so excited to share your story with the She's the Boss Chats gang. So thank you so much for agreeing to be my guest. My absolute pleasure, Jules. It's lovely to be here. Oh, it's just so great to have you here. So let's start off by telling everybody what it is that you're doing now and why. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. I uh, I think I've shared with you before, Jules, I've got the best job in the whole world. Um, I don't think so. I think I have. <laughs> <laughs> we can argue about that. But yeah. it's one that it's one that I um that I created just for me. So, you know, it's it's a completely different phase of my career, and we'll, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in terms yeah. of my career. Um, but what I do today is I inspire female leaders to kind of take the next step and take control of their career. And I'm on a journey ultimately to see more female CEOs. Yay. Um, That's exactly <laughs> I, what we need. Yeah, I, I just think having been a CEO myself, and I know we'll sort of touch on that, um, it's the best job in the world and, you know, I think a lot of people probably have a whole lot of myths around, you know, what the job entails and what it's like and I want to break those myths down. And so I do that by interviewing a lot of incredibly successful leaders and kind of getting them to share their journey, their stories, the good, bad and ugly. And, um, and then I work um, at this stage with females primarily, mm-hmm. but I then work with people a whole range of different ways. So... I run a, a couple of mastermind programs, mm-hmm. um, so I have a four-week and a 12-week program, and I work with leaders right from emerging leaders through middle management through to sort of senior executives into CEO and, um, you know, get them ready to take that next step. So, right. and, and I love it. So there's something very small that you completely forgot to mention in all of that, which is the name of your business. <laughs> oh. hello. Hello. So, um, brave Feminine Leadership. Such a good name. Where did you come up with the name, by the way? I'm interested in that one because it's such a good name. I I workshopped it. I um, I sent, so 2020, deep in the dark, sort of Melbourne COVID lockdown, <laughs> um, I got creative. And there's a few parts to my story that kind of um, led to that. But I got creative and got the idea of kicking off these interview series. And right. completely and utterly unlike me, normally I've tackled my whole life with a strategy around do this, this is where it's leading and, and so on and so forth. And on this occasion I didn't. I just thought I'm super curious about why we're not seeing enough females move into those senior yeah. executive and leadership roles. And I'm just going to start interviewing people. I've got this wonderful network. I'm going to start asking them why are we not seeing more females in these roles. And um, I think the brave... The brave part came from, you know, I think it, it, it is challenging to navigate careers and I think sometimes it takes a bit of courage and a lot of people talk about confidence and I think the confidence builds over time. The first yeah. thing you need is a bit of courage and that's where brave came from. Feminine came from the fact that I'm not exclusively talking about females, mm-hmm. I'm talking about feminine leadership right. um, qualities. So things that have traditionally been seen as feminine 
and potentially weak. Yeah. And, <laughs> and maybe potentially weak. They haven't been well, well, yeah, and- I just think they've been looked at the wrong way. I had a great guy. Oh, my God, it was in the learning table event that we did with you. So for anyone that's listening that doesn't know, we also do events. And Melissa came on and talked to us and there was a guy there. That's the first time we've ever had a man at any of our events. And one of the things that we asked him was, what do you think the barriers are? And he, and it was so profound, his answer that I just keep remembering it was, was he said, I don't think that we, I think what we need to do is teach people that feminine values are positive values, not negative ones. And that really resonated with me. And I think your idea of brave for me is I think any woman who becomes a CEO is brave because it is, you know, unusual you're not haven't probably got a lot of allies around you and uh, and it, and it's you know i mean i couldn't imagine leading 7000 people as you had and i know we'll get to that but it's such a huge amount of people um that yeah you have to be very brave but uh, i love what you're doing okay so the next question is was there a light bulb moment what was it that made you decide to set up this business um, Jules, yeah, that's, it's hard to answer, was it a light bulb? Because it wasn't. It was a series of events, one after the other. Right. I think where, where part of that started was I stepped out of my executive career because I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Ah. And, and, and I'm super well and healthy now, but I took the opportunity along the way. I'd always been telling myself in my time in executive roles and my time as CEO, I'd always been saying, by the time my children are teenagers, I want to be at home more. I don't want to be traveling as much. Right. I always had that hanging out there. Well, getting breast cancer wasn't the way I imagined (laughs) that. that No, (laughs) I can't imagine it was. But it's one of those, isn't it, moments where something terrible has turned into something fabulous. That's right. And so, so I took the opportunity to not go back into executive roles. But I'll be frank and say I went through a period of time there where I was a little bit lost about mm. what that next step was going to be. I just knew what I didn't want it to be. I didn't know what I wanted it to be. And so I did some things that I think people, you know, traditionally do when they're looking for those paths. I thought, I've been a CEO, well, I must become a company director. And years before, I'd done the company director course and all those sort of good things lined up for it. So I pointed myself in that direction to give myself a framework, really. But at the same time, I started investing in myself quite a bit. I started, you know, working with a coach myself um, and really, for the first time in my whole career, pausing. You know, I think it's such a gift. Uh, we're so busy doing, Stop. doing, doing all the time. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I stopped and, and it's a luxury to have been able to do that. But I did. I stopped and I reflected. And out of that came, um, you know, came this idea, the light bulb. So I started the interviews. The light bulb for starting the business was on the back of those conversations, Jules, I couldn't believe the number of people that interacted with me after they watched those interviews. And the simple things they were saying to me was, oh, my goodness, I can't believe those successful people feel that way. I can't believe they have self-doubt, that they have an inner critic. And then they started asking how could they work with me. So it was very organic, the development of um, the business which has been wonderful. And now I've run several masterminds. I've had some incredible leaders graduate from them um, and the feedback's been amazing. So, you know, it's been lovely having that organic kind of process. So no single light bulb that I can sort of give you, just more a really natural, easy 
path. Which is so beautiful, isn't it? I mean, when you're struggling um, to do something, you start questioning, should you do it? But when it comes like this and it just flows, you know you're on the right track. So I'm so delighted. Okay, so now it's all about you and I want to take you back. Can we go back to when you were a young girl? Where did you grow up? What sort of size family? What did your parents do? So I I was born in Adelaide, but uh, so mother, father, and a younger brother. Mm-hmm. And my dad worked in the Air Force at the time, and he got his big break. He got a job working for an airline in Hong Kong for Cathay Pacific. Okay. And so the whole family moved there. We moved there when I was seven. Um, my younger brother was was five. And that's a bit um, of a change from Adelaide. <laughs> A big change from Adelaide. Yeah, I think I think mum fed us steamed rice and you know green veggies because Hong Kong was a very different place then. Yeah, um, you know early eighties. Um, but yeah, we look, we loved it. We had an absolute ball, and we lived there through until my parents ended up getting divorced. But I lived, there, you know, he lived there until I was in my early twenties. All right. And as part of living there. We went to boarding school. Mm-hmm. So we went to boarding school back um, back in Australia, both of us. And and we loved boarding school. Like I've always been a pretty independent sort of character and just the idea of having your friends on tap 24-7 um, was just you know, great. That was, that was heaven Isn't for that me. funny because so, I, my father was in the army and I was sent to boarding school um, and I was in England and my family were in Germany and I absolutely hated it. And I don't know I don't know any Australian women who've gone to an Australian boarding school who haven't absolutely loved it. So I just think that there's a, there must be something different about boarding school here that it's warmer and friendlier because it was horrible in England. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, I, <laughs> no, but I I loved it. Yeah. Um, so uh, and I think I was I was really um, I had I had a lovely upbringing, Jules. You know, I had two parents who um, painted a picture for me that didn't have any limits attached to it. Yeah, you know, great. I, I really could do whatever I wanted to do, um, and. And look what that's, that's done such, such for you. Yeah, it is. Such a gift. It is, totally. So yeah. you were good at, were you good at school then? I'm assuming if you loved it that that meant maybe you knuckled down at its work as well or not? <laughs> I was pretty good at school. So I was, you know, I was I was lucky in the sense that I was probably considered reasonably smart. Right. Um, and school came reasonably easy to me until the, until the later years at school. So, um, you know, I was. Um, given an opportunity, we had boarding houses. So they were houses that had, you know, they probably had 150 girls in them. Right. And I was given the house captain role. That was... Of course you um, were. <laughs> Just well, a precursor was, to the rest of your career, I'm sure. Well, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think back on some of that stuff, yeah. maybe. But um, in terms of giving that role, it wasn't the best thing for my study because what happened was every person in year 12, um, so in our final year at school, Everyone shared a study with someone else except me. Right. So the privilege, you know, that was perceived of being house captain was you had your own study. The other privilege of being house captain was that if you weren't in your study, you could easily convince someone that you were on very important business, Right. Uh, you know, checking yep. in on someone who needed your support <laughs> or something like that. So being the sort of character who um, I've always suffered FOMO, Right. Uh, you know, I've always liked to have a, a crowd of people around me because that's where I get my energy from. Um, that was not a good combination. Someone who had been reasonably naturally smart, therefore I hadn't had to work hard, 
um, had a perfect excuse for not knuckling down and working hard. And look, I did okay in year 12, um, but I certainly did not hit my um, potential. Hit my potential, full potential. In that year. So, not. so what happened when you finished school? Did you decide to go to uni? I did, but I took a year off. So I went and lived in France for a year. And, oh, why um, France? Well, I'd always studied it at school, right. so I thought, let's put the language to, you know, all that study and language to some good use. I'd grown up overseas, so travelling was... Not um, scary. Not scary. It was it was in me to want to do it. Um, so I took the decision and I went, I actually went and I did an exchange. So I lived with a French family for six months. They right. had six children, four of whom were adopted from Korea. Wow! And, uh, incredible family. <laughs> yeah. And I went. I went to school. Um, and so while I was over there, I went to school, and uh, I still remember the English teacher. So she was teaching French students English. Would never <laughs> ever ever give me a hundred percent. Never. She always found something wrong with my um, of course with my English. <laughs> Oh, there are just those teachers, aren't they, who just don't want you to get above yourself. <laughs> no, that's right. So, um, so I did that, and then uh, then travelled around the US with some friends, backpacking, and then I came back, and then I went to uni. So, uni for me was um, an arts degree. Um, I majored in uh, French and uh, <laughs> politics. Right. Um, Very useful. I don't useful. think either of those. Well, I'm not sure either <laughs> of them has contributed terribly much. But look, I think an arts degree. It does teach you to think critically about it things does. and to and to you know use persuasive arguments and a whole range of things like that. And so, um, you know, whilst I wouldn't say there's a direct link to that in my career, it was a good foundation. And I got I got a part time job while I was at uni, and that was where my career started, Jules, because I started working part time at Telstra um, oh. in a call in a call centre. Wow, that's funny. I started at the Herald Sun in a call centre, but it was it's a great job to do when you're at uni because it's sort of the hours work, the money's pretty good and it's not really long hours. And if you and I guess if you like you and I and you can pretty easily hold a conversation with <laughs> underwater somebody. with marbles in your mouth. Perfect job. Perfect job. Okay. Um, yeah. So how did so, that lead to a career? So uh, I landed in the call centre and I I got promoted quickly, yeah. I, fell in, I fell in love with two things. You know, I think the call centre's got a really um, a mathematical side to it, really, because you're trying to work out of all these calls or traffic or, you know, whatever it is, the demand coming in from customers, how do I match the resources to that and, and all those things. So there was a real um, a math side that I fell in love with. And then there was the people side yeah. and, and the energy and the buzz. And there's nothing quite like the buzz. I still think of, of a call centre. No, I agree. Yeah, wonderful places. So I fell in love with it. I got promoted quickly. Um, I was lucky to – I then got headhunted to get moved away from there and that all felt very glamorous at the time. Or someone's family called me and they want me of to Of course, when you're them. young, you can't believe that that's happened to you. Of course, Absolutely. now you look at it and go, you can spot those really smart girls and, and want to, you know, grab them when you can. But it's very exciting when it happens to you. Absolutely. And at the time working at Telstra, which is a very different organisation today, but at the time I looked around and all I could see were people in brown cardigans. Yeah. And <laughs> I always say flesh-coloured stockings, but same thing. <laughs> 
Well, brown cardigans are probably coming back into fashion now because, um, you know, in fact, I probably think they are if you go and have a look. They probably, it's anything that's deeply uncool becomes cool again. So I just, I looked and I thought, can I see myself here um, in 15, 20 years' time? And, and everything I looked at at that point in time, 20 years down the road, was wearing a brown cardigan and boring and I, I rejected that. So I got excited about this opportunity and I left and uh, went and worked for a couple of years at an organisation that, uh, you know, along the way you have places you work where, although I picked some good things up there, I picked a whole lot of stuff that I did not want to um, to replicate. You know, to some carry of the ways forward. They, no, some of the ways they did things, you know, it was the business wasn't performing terribly well, so they went through a series of unfortunate redundancies. And I just think the way they did that didn't, they didn't do it with the level of respect that, that you can do those things. I mean, they're tough things to do. But So chalk that up to, um, uh, you know, a couple of years where um, I, I wasn't going to stay there long term anyway, let's put it that way. So I then got approached again, ironically, by some people I'd worked with very closely and respected highly when I was at Telstra. Yeah. And they, they were launching a startup and it was a startup called Stella. Um, it was in the call centre space. It was in the early days of people outsourcing their right. work, yep. so recognising that core biz- it wasn't their core business to do that and, and employing companies to do it. <laughs> and so I started at Stella where I stayed for the next 18 years, where I moved through a whole range of roles into the CEO role, and my last eight years there were as CEO. Okay. Well, let's just start with the beginning first. What What did you love about Stella having thought that, um, you know, the potential at Telstra was to wear brown cardigans. What was it about Stella that you loved at the beginning? It a, it, absolute startup. Right. Um, so the what, did, what did that mean? What is an absolute startup when it's, uh, you know, something as big as that? Was it was it an empty an empty warehouse shell that you were slowly filling up or we how did it start? Were, we were, um, well, we were, we were renting space yep. um, off of another company. So we literally rented, you know, ourselves a couple of seats um, in someone else's office and we'd walk through, we'd walk through all of these people who were clearly not engaged in their job. <laughs> right. And then, and then you'd have this group of us and there were sort of six or seven of us in the office in Melbourne at the time. And, we were having a ball. I mean, right from day one, the company started with a, a fabulous culture and that culture was founded on um, a culture that comes out of the US um, called the Great Game of Business. Right. And what it, what it does is basically um, engages all of the employees in the business to act and think like owners and then shares profit. So teaches people how to read financial oh, statements. Oh, wow. Treat, yeah, teaches people how businesses operate, right. what you need to do to win and then shares profit with employees. So at the end of the month... That sounds extraordinary. Incredible. Um, you know, incredible. So a terrific culture to be part of. Yeah. We, we got the chance to just roll our sleeves up and get involved in everything. Our jobs in the early days were sales. You know, right. Everyone in that entire organisation was focused on how do we sell because that, that was the reality of us growing. And grow we did. Right. So, you know, and by the time I left, I think, as you said, you know, there were, you know, well in excess of 5,000 employees operating um, Australia, the Philippines and the US were the um, regions that I looked after. So, wow. So, yeah. so next question has to be, what's it like when you get an opportunity to become a CEO? Tell me about how that actual, how that happened. It's. 
It wasn't on my radar at the time, although I will say having had, and I'll I'll put some context around that, having having worked at that company for quite some time, and there were two CEOs prior to me, and I was close to both of them, and they were wonderful sponsors and mentors to me. The very first CEO said to me, um, and this was, gosh, I was, I can't even think how old I was at this point, but but I was young. Right. And he said to me, you do realise you could be CEO one day. And he said one other thing to me that was really powerful and has always stayed with me, and I think it actually is part of the reason I did the series in the first place. He said to me, you do realise that every time anyone steps up into a new leadership role, they're shitting themselves, right? <laughs> what a great guy. What a great thing to say. Amazing guy, and this and and this guy is called Steve Morfitt. Right. Um, but you know, amazing. And for me, sitting there thinking, surely Steve never feels that way. Um, Which I think anyone below thinks about senior management that they all totally. cool and calm and everything's easy for them. Yeah, that's right. And so to have that, I mean, that was a that was a real gift because not only did it plant a seed in my mind, which I think is really important if you're working with young leaders and particularly yeah. young female leaders, it planted a seed in my mind about what was possible, but then also took the pressure off me that if you ever actually get there one day, it's normal to feel that way. Terrified. Um, okay. Yeah, which was amazing. So flash forwards, probably six or seven years later, I've now got two young children. I've just come back to work from my second maternity leave. So I took a year off with both kids. So I've just come back and I've got a son who's, you know, probably 18 months old. When the then CEO sits me down and says, um, okay, so he was moving up into a a more global role at the time. And he said, um, you know, we'd like to offer you the role of CEO. (laughs) Wow. My reaction was to swear. Yeah, I would have too. <laughs> and, and then go because, home and talk to your husband and go, do I even want this? Well, I was working, I think I was back at work three days a week. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was juggling the kids. My husband was working. My husband's a teacher. And my first thought was, I mean, wow, that's flattering. Wow, that's exciting. Um, how on earth would I make that work? You know, that was kind yeah. of where I went. And um, anyway, I did, I took three months to talk to my husband and to really think it through. And, you know, my gorgeous husband um, said at the time he'd been really busy. He'd been, you know, not only juggling his job, he'd been working um, in a sort of boarding house role. So he had these additional pastoral responsibilities and all sorts of things. He was tired. And he said to me at the time, oh, you know what, I think I could probably do with a, a break. I know he meant break from his career, but at the time when he said break, I thought to myself, you don't know what you're saying. <laughs> but Jules, I did a really important thing. And I say to all of your listeners, if you're ever in that conversation, bite your tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, do not let anyone in on what they might be in for. Um, but take up that very generous offer. And so we did. We decided as a family, he would come home initially what was going to be a year, uh, ended up turning into probably three years because he stayed at home until my son went to school. Right. Um, and that was how we made things work, you know, and I think it is important. It's challenging to take on these roles. And so, you know, you need to work out how you're going to make the rest of your life work for you around that. Can I just say, though, it's really interesting that you say that because I wonder whether a lot of men have the same 
questions of themselves of how am I going to juggle it? Do you know what I mean? It's interesting, isn't it? Because you're absolutely right. And the first thing you'd be doing is what am I going to do with the kids? What am I going to do with, you know, family life as well? But I just, it's just interesting to me that you had that dilemma because I wonder whether there's a lot of men that have the same kind of question or they just immediately assume that the kids will get looked after and I'm more important. Probably not yet, Jules. You know, I still think we're still in a very traditional gendered care environment where a lot of that extra, um, you know, responsibility of care for children in home and things like that falls to... Although, although, interestingly, post-pandemic it might have changed, actually, because I know one of the things that came out of it was men spending a lot more time with their children and going, hang on a minute, I didn't realise what I was missing out on and I want more of this. That's right. That's right. I think we are seeing change in that area and I think there's a lot of organisations are doing to make sure that, uh, you know, leave is available for both parents and all those sorts of things. Yeah, and I think, yeah. I think I think they're helping shift that. But back, back at this point in time, um, it wasn't the case. This was sort of probably mid-2000s. Um, and well, my you... husband at the time was one of the only dads dropping kids off at school. Wow. Wow, That's a, that is just... Great. I mean, my uh, my husband did the same thing at the same time, but there were very few. And, of course, for you to be a female CEO back in the early 2000s would have probably put you in the 2% or something of... Well, yeah, it's interesting you say that because there were... I don't know what the percentages were, but I know that I, I spent a lot of time building a network and I think yeah. that's a super important thing for people to do. And so for the first time, I was out in external environments with other CEOs and sitting in rooms with other CEOs uh, one thing stood out um, really, really clearly. Oh, what was and, that, Melissa? <laughs> well, that was that there was never, ever, ever a line for the ladies' loot. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it like being a female CEO of a big organisation? Did you get pushback from below in terms of the management or was everyone supportive and it no. was brilliant? No. Um not at all. I mean, I was... Oh, that's I good. Was, yeah, not at all. I was lucky to grow up in an organisation. Being a newer organisation, um, gender had never been a big barrier. And sure, I was the first senior executive to take maternity leave and to juggle coming back part-time and to do all those different things. So there were plenty of firsts that I had to do to push through. But when I first started in the role, in the role Jules, I actually also started in the role of part-time. So, you know, wow, I negotiated. that's amazing. I, yeah, I just, I negotiated what my context was and that was I don't expect to be able to do this all the time, part-time, um, but this is what I need. So for this first six months, I can only do. Um, and so I worked four days a week for those first six months. And I was pretty disciplined in the sense that, I mean, of course, of course, if you're leading an organisation, there's a, a massive degree of flexibility and the buck stops with you and all that stuff. But I was pretty disciplined and I didn't, on the days that I wasn't working, I really didn't spend time checking my email or, uh, oh, well you know. Yeah. Um, otherwise, otherwise, there's no you time whatsoever if you don't you know, <laughs> kind of do that. But for a lot um, of people, they would say, I would assume that is the price you pay if you're going to be at the top. So the fact that you're remodelling how that might look is, you know, great for the next people coming up behind you as well. I think it is. And I think... That's, you know, I say, I say to people, when you do become a leader, you actually have an obligation to, um, you know, role model a different way of, of doing things and yeah. maybe potentially a better way of doing things. 
I was always, Jules, one of the things, and people would say this quite often, um, I would get people say to me, you're not a normal CEO. <laughs> now, I chose to, and, and I know the spirit in which it was shared yeah. was, was genuine, but not being a normal CEO meant I stayed very much down to earth um, in terms of communicating with people. So I don't, I don't know. It's, um, I think a lot of people step into these leadership roles and assume that they have to act a certain way, be a certain way, all of those sorts of things. In actual fact, you don't. You got selected because of who you are. Yeah. Um, so be who you are when you step into these roles. Oh my God! If if anyone, if I was ever going to be a CEO, I would so want you to be my mentor. You're just so great. Um, and and the other thing that, and we've done this interview before for anyone who's listening. We've had to redo this. And one of the things that struck in my mind was you said how exciting it was to go in as, as a new CEO and be able to make those changes happen. And I remember being quite taken by that because excited wouldn't be the word that I would be thinking of. I'd be terrified is probably much closer to the truth. So it, what was it like for you? Um, it was it was exciting and terrifying and all these things. Someone else gave me some great advice, Jules, and, and I, love, I love listening to a lot of other people and then I assimilate it all and then I work out what feels right for, for me. you. Yeah. Um, but one thing that someone said to me that uh, was so important, it's someone who knew me well, they said, you will jump into that role and you'll see so many things that you want to fix. And right. choose three because you'll kill yourself and the organisation if you try and tackle them all at once. Oh, what great and advice. It's so true. And, you know, if I sometimes people say to me, what's the soft skill you're still working on yourself? And I think my lifelong journey is working on patience. Um, <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to get there with that one. <laughs> no. So it was such good advice for me because, yeah. you know, I mean, the way that shows up in my personal life is my poor husband. If I decide I want to do something, well, it's 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 actually happening today. Uh, is, is <laughs> right. When we're doing it. And, and had I translated that uh, wholly and solely into a work environment without thinking about the impact that has on other people, um, you know, that's would not have been a fun place to work. So it was terrific advice about, um, you know, how to kind of pace yourself and pace the organisation. Jules, I loved it. It's exciting. Um, it's, it's a bit daunting. Plenty of moments along the way that you sit back and think, oh, you know, am, am I actually up for this? But you just got to trust your instincts and get on with it and find the things that... Um, uh, I don't know, centre you or, yeah. you know, like find I wonder what whether, they are I wonder whether it made a bit of a difference for you having worked your way up through that organisation so you knew it so intimately and so well. Um, I often think, imagine going and taking a role for a completely new organisation that you know nothing about would be even more challenging, I would have thought. I mean, would you I consider doing that sort of thing yourself now? Would you go and be CEO of another organisation? A lot of people have asked me that, and um, I don't think so because I don't – I think I'm now busy enjoying a different space yeah. and I'm busy yeah. enjoying building something for myself. Look, I think there's a double-edged sword there, Jules. So stepping into your first CEO role in an organisation where you've grown up, I think there's a lot of degree of comfort around how things – work, what yeah. you've observed does, doesn't work, all those things. Equally, there's a challenge, though, because you're stepping up amongst a peer group and you have to find a way to establish um, relationships that, you know, you're, you're going to have different conversations. 
Yeah, um, I hadn't thought about that. Yes, of course. So that's probably the challenge in that sense. Um, you know, equally, you've probably got client relationships who are now going to see you differently and, and all those sorts of things. So there's challenges that come with that, um, as well as the upsides. Going into a new organisation, you know, I think how exciting that must be. I wouldn't want to do it as my first CEO gig, I don't think. Um, no. But uh, I guess I can't. Uh, plenty of people do, so, you know, I'm sure there's a way to make it work. But going into a new place, you know, lean back on all those things you know you need to do and, and number one is listen. Go and meet people, listen and, and get to grips with the organisation and then, you know, Start then away thinking about the changes you can make. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, along your career journey, um, have there been any women that stand out that have helped you in your career? And I only ask this because this is about She's the Boss and uh, and I feel that women aren't necessarily given the shout-outs that, um, you know, they could be. So I just like to ask, have there been any? There have. Um, you know, Great. one, yeah, one, one early on I'll call out who you had leaders along the way who, um, and, and I think ironically we ended up being peers a long time uh, later. Yeah. But, um, you have people who are um, who give you feedback, and and that feedback can be a real gift. I mentioned patience. The way that patience showed up early in my corporate career was if I was sitting in meetings with groups of people, and they didn't get what was being discussed quickly, or the meeting was taking longer than it should have. I would audibly sigh. I mean, so <laughs> arrogant, but I wasn't aware I was doing it. Like I would literally kind of go. And Here we go happy. again. <laughs> yes. And, and this one uh, gorgeous woman, Michaela Green, um, just said to me one day, do you, do you realise you do this? And I was horrified that I did that when I thought right. about what impact that has on people. So that was huge. Flash forward to now in my career, I think during my actual sort of long career, I probably had incredible male sponsors more than females. Right. And it's just because the females weren't there. Yeah, right? yeah. So, um, but now in this new phase of my career, gosh, I've been supported by some incredible people. I mean, Meredith Helicar, um, you know, is has been wonderful to me. Catherine Fagg, um, you know, these two women have operated in the corporate landscape in Australia for a long, long time. They've been wonderful to me. Um, Cherie Rubenstein from One Roof yes. has been incredible, just in opening up her own network and connecting me to people. And um, I, I feel um, sometimes women get a bad rap, right, that they mm-hmm. compete and they don't support each other. My experience has been absolutely opposite. Yes. I actually think, though, that that is, look, and this is me from the outside, but the stories I hear about the lack of support seem to come out of corporate where it's a very competitive environment often. I don't know. And, and uh, you yeah. know, and for anyone that's listening now, M- Melissa's going, no, 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 she doesn't agree. But but certainly when you go out on your own, I think there are there is so much support. Women in general really do look after each other. Yeah. I, um, yeah, tell yeah, me your perspective. I want to I I I bust some of those myths. You know, yeah, I think I think that um, there's a perception that um, women don't support each other. And I know there's plenty of stories women will tell where they've been in a work <clears> environment and they haven't been supported. So I'm not trying to deny that. I know that exists. I think what sits behind that is the fact that there, historically and, and even still today, there are so few seats for women at the mm. making tables 
but it sets up this competitive, yeah, um, true. you know, backdrop to what's going on. And I honestly, I encourage people, firstly, if you're in a leadership role, um, just stop and observe is that going on, you know, and, and help people if that's going on, help people work their way through it. Yeah. And, you know, if it's happening to you, just be brave, engage the person in the conversation um, because it's, I'm trying to create enough seats for all of us, you know. There's so many yeah. people stimulating this, but or help people create their own seats at their own tables. That's a, that I, I was talking about it with someone a couple of days ago, and the, this woman was saying, you know, we're always hearing there's not enough seats at the table. Well, let's make some flipping more seats then, which I just yeah. thought was beautiful. Um, okay, now in your career, and I know we haven't got too much longer, but I, I'm yeah. interested to hear have there been pivotal moments? So obviously the breast cancer has been a huge one for you, but have there been times where it seemed like a disaster that later on it's ended up, you've looked at it and gone, I never would have gone in that direction if it wasn't for that happening. Have you had any of those kind of pivotal, to use that word, <laughs> uh, moments or not really? I probably gave them to you earlier through yeah. the conversation, Jules. So, I mean, without a doubt, breast cancer, a big one. Um and I think probably my early career, brown cardigans and stuff like that. I don't think there's anything. I mean, I had various ups and downs along the way um, career-wise, um, but nothing that would, you know, has veered me off to a different course yeah. um, like like being diagnosed with an illness did. So Yeah, yeah. And thank yeah. goodness in some ways it did because I'm very, very excited to see what you're going to do with, um, with Brave Feminine Leadership and the Brave Group moving forward. Now, next thing I want to talk about is um, burnout, particularly yeah. because I think I've done about 200 interviews now with female founders and the number of women that have pushed themselves to the extent that they've got sick has really shocked me. I don't think I had realised quite how prevalent it was. Have you... Um, made a conscious decision to how to juggle work and life to separate things to give yourself that downtime, or are you so passionate about what you do that you're working every hour that God sends? <laughs> uh, well, can I can I say that depends which day you ask me, Jules. Right. Um, I'm I am I've always been pretty disciplined about balance, to be honest, okay. and, and whatever balance means because I think it well, means it's different. so different for everyone, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I always prioritise, as an example, being home to have dinner with my kids every night. So if I wasn't travelling away on an aeroplane, but I would always leave the office, make a big deal of saying goodbye to everybody because I'm not going to slink out. I want people to know that they yep. have li we have lives outside of work. Um, and, and so that was one thing, right? Um, I ended up um, in my final year, um, I ended up really working far too hard. At the time, we were focused on potentially selling the organisation. Right. And I tried to shelter my own team from that, and so many females do that. They try to shelter the workload and hang on to it themselves. And so I kind of carried two jobs. And, look, there was pressure on other people in my team without a doubt, um, but I didn't look after myself that year, and I, I'm positive that contributed to the outcome for me. Now that looks right. very different to me. So. Yeah. Now I um, uh, I do yoga every morning. So I do 20 minutes of yoga every morning. I walk with my husband. We get up early and go for a walk at 5.30 every morning. 
Five thirty, Janie yeah. Mac. Craig, I'm an early bird. I'm an early yeah, bird. Don't, you don't must try be. and run into yeah. Don't try and run into me at sort of ten o'clock at night because there's not much going on at that end of the day. Um, you know, on a regular basis anyway. But I, I really do prioritise my health now. And yes, I'm super passionate about what I'm doing. And so sometimes that means that I. I don't want to stop um, yeah. because it doesn't feel like work. It's, you know, it's, there's a real sort of um, joy to it all, joy, passion and, and love to what I'm doing. So even in the hard moments, it's like, um, you know, it's, it pulls me towards it uh, rather than anything else, but you have to be conscious about it. I say to people all the time, you are the only one in charge of your time. And if you don't actually take control and put time in to do the things that slow you down, give you energy or whatever, mm-hmm. um, then then you're going to end up burnt out because if there's time if there's time left in your diary and you're not conscious about how you use it, it will get filled up and it won't get filled up with the stuff that's important. That's right. In fact, I learned that last year and I decided that I would make Thursdays my day where my diary is blocked out and it says busy and I don't make any appointments and it's just to get through all that stuff yeah. that happens on those other days that you don't get time to implement stuff. Absolutely. Mm. Um, okay, uh, I've got another funny question for you. This is apropos of nothing really other than I'm just nosy and a journalist suggested I ask it. Um, is there a quirky fact about you that not very many people know that you're up for sharing with us? I love this sure. question. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm worried more people might be across this quirky fact than I realise. <laughs> uh, but this quirky fact was pointed out to me um, actually by my daughter who's now 16 and she pointed it out to me when she was about five and she said to me, Mum, why is it when you look in the mirror you have a funny mirror face? <laughs> and I do, Jules. Um, you know, now since she's sort of opened that up, now a lot of my girlfriends pointed out too um, and love paying me out about it. And I think when I look in the face, what, when I look in the mirror, sorry, what, what I do is I, I think I tend to suck my cheeks in a little and just make my cheekbones a bit more prominent and... <laughs> Do you know, so, my best friend does that. It's so funny. There must be, I didn't know there were two of you in the world. Yeah, but she no. always does this sort yeah. of looking, you know, sucking in her cheeks. And I, but I would never think to call it her mirror face. So there you I go. Always, You're... always wonder why I look different in photos, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And last but not least, um, I love my phone myself and I love the apps that I use on my phone. Some people use their phone for business and others don't. So my question to you is, are there any clever apps that you use for business on your phone or are you not really a, that person? Oh, um, what do I think? <laughs> I, one I do use, which is for business, which is super helpful, is um, is Google Drive. Oh yeah, so I have, yep. yeah. So I have the app for Google Drive on my phone, and it basically means I never get caught out anywhere. That's I've right. Always I'm got so... access, yeah, to everything that I. It's got everything um, on it. Um, so that would probably be the first one that I would pull out. The other ones aren't business related stuff, really. I love Canva. Yep. That's business so, related. Yeah, I mean, I do. I I've taught myself how to play in Canva. Now I've got someone wonderful who helps me. But in the early days, I was doing it all I myself. Know, thank God it's so intuitive because I have to, and I'm not that person. It's so that good. Nor- isn't it? it is. It's so easy. Yeah, yeah it's great. It's good. Fantastic. And then I had a fun one. Did you want okay. a fun one? Yes, that I, I want a fun one as well. So I mean, it's, I don't know whether it's um, fun or not, but. I've recently downloaded the Amazon app, which is just feeding a shopping addiction, can I just say quietly. (laughs) But every time someone mentions a book to me, 
Um, That's where you go. On I go, order it, and it's magic. You know, two days later, it's on my doorstep. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they are two great apps as well. Well, I have to say that I'm ashamed to say that for the last five years, I think, I've been playing Candy Crush, <laughs> which <laughs> horrifies my sons who go, we cannot believe you're still doing it. But that's my fun one. Um, I got into Wordle. Oh, yeah. And, well, there's an app. There's a Wordle app as well. Did you see I that? I got the app yet. No. I got the app because then it lets you do 50 at a time instead of just one oh, a day. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that whether that's be good dangerous. or bad. I know. Well, listen, Melissa, thank you so much for this amazing interview. You're a very generous woman and you've got incredible experience and I love what you're doing. If anybody wanted to get hold of you because they want you to coach them or they want to, you know, be in touch with you for whatever reason, what is the best way for them to do it? What's your web ad- website address? And- a couple of different ways they could do it. So they yep. can come and come and find us at Brave Feminine Leadership um, in terms of the website. The other thing I say is approach me on LinkedIn. Find yeah. me on LinkedIn and send me a connection. I'm super happy to connect with people and, um, you know, there's a big, big wide network out there. So jump on in if, if you haven't. Totally. And just can you give everyone the web address just in case they can't find www. you? www.bravefeminineleadership.com. Okay, brilliant. Well, listen, thank you so much. Lovely chatting to you, Jules. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. And you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'sthebos.com.au. She's the boss.